0: stayed away for a long time a long time no one knows what it has gone from me no one knows nobody cares except Ain't that long. Oh, I ain't even been in here that long. I'm it doing this thing and I don't know. It, it's just ouch. Ugh. It's done the man who invented. Pr-
1: Hello, 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 hello. It's an absolute honour to welcome into the Dukey Radio Show studio Billy Ritchie, the man who invented prog. And he really did. I first heard about our guest's innovative musical endeavours with the band 123 and later Clouds through recent Dukey Radio Show guest Bruce Thomas's book Rough Notes. And in a recent prog special on this very show, Dave Dawson and myself waxed lyrical about Billy Ritchie's influence on the likes of Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer. In this first instalment of our three-part interview with Billy, we chat about our guest's early years in the music business. From finding his sound with the satellites and the premieres in early 60s Scotland, to being signed up by the Beatles' manager... Brian Epstein while in the band 123, we discover that innovation comes with quite a cost attached to it. In the same way that Marty McFly's guitar antics were shocking to his 1955 audience in the film Back to the Future, Britain wasn't quite ready for Billy Richie's blueprint for prog in the mid-60s. To say that his band 123 were a marmite outfit would be an understatement. From requiring police escorts to save the band from audience dissent to becoming the toast of London Town with their now legendary residency at the Marquee Club in front of future prog demigods who are carefully watching and taking notes. It wasn't an easy ride. But first, what is our guest's favourite word? I want to know.
2: I'm Billy Ritchie. My favourite word is balance. 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 It's an easy one for me because I think looking back over all the years, I think that's the most important word there is. Keeping a balance in everything applies to almost anything. I think certainly it's something I wouldn't like to give the impression that I know how to make that balance work because I certainly don't. You can
1: strive towards
2: it. That's it's it. the ultimate goal. I'm aware of it being in the line that you have to aim at. Mm. I I tend to have a roller coaster life, you know, of great highs and great lows. But um, that probably has led me to be more aware that balance is such an important word. Mm. In that context, but in, in many ways, you know, in a relationship, all kinds of things, you know, you've got to kind of draw that line between being, by loving somebody and also being prepared to tell them that they're, hold it right there, you're going too far.
1: Absolutely. So
2: it's all that kind of balance.
1: In a band, financially, obviously, your no, outgoings and incomings. Of it was,
2: even for a Scotsman, we weren't very good at that sort of thing. Indeed.
1: I'm we, glad that you mentioned that rather than me. It would seem racist if, if I <laughs> <laughs> come with a... Whereabouts in Scotland did you grow up? Whereabouts were you born uh, off I was, the border?
2: I, I was born in, in a place called Lanark, which is the nearest town, but we actually lived in a village called Forth which is like a one-horse town. Did where, you know where, the horse? <laughs> well, as I said to you earlier on, lots of people, uh, even I meet people down here and they'll say, where did you come from? And I say, Lanark. They say, well, actually, Lanark. I said, no, actually, it was a place just outside Lanark called Forth. They said, ah, you're one of the sheep shaggers.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was
2: kind of like that.
1: <laughs> and did
2: you did you get on with the, the
1: sheep? Were they nice? Were they accommodating?
2: Well, the mother, that's one of the stories they always tell. They say, uh, a mother was watching us while we had sex, and she said, "What did her mother say? Bah,
1: <laughs> oh, bah." And I mean, that sounds like uh,
2: quite a remote location. It was. And
1: uh, did you come from a, a large
2: family? I was the eldest of six. Although right. my my youngest brother Brian didn't arrive till I was a teenager, so. So quite five a, of us uh, lot right. of the time. So
1: in a way, you almost became another parent, I suppose, when you've got a, a sibling sister, of that age.
2: My sister, Catherine, really brought up my brother. You know, She became like a second mother. My father always said that, you know, that Catherine, he had two mothers.
1: And the Ritchie family, were they a musical family? Was there music in the house, instruments about
2: There wasn't piano? most of the time. My father tried to play the fiddle at one time. And I don't mean the joke version. <laughs> he actually tried to play the violin, and we always go, "Oh, stop it!" You know, it's terrible. And um, but apparently, when back in history. Um, there was a couple of great grandads were pipe majors, which uh, I spoke to a piper one night, and down in one of these ten pubs in the George, I think it was. And he said, "Oh, I'm a piper," and I said, "Well, my great grandfather was a pipe major." And he went, "Oh my God!" You know, that was a big thing to him. So it must have been pretty. It must have been pretty good. I didn't realize till that moment that being a pipe major was was a major thing,
1: major thing indeed. So there was a, kind of a musical pedigree somewhere in your DNA. I
2: didn't know that till much later. Right. Uh, we had no signs of any of that till till uh, I, I was about eight or something, and a neighbour threw out a piano. A man next door. threw As was, you uh, do. As you do. Well, they just wanted rid of it, and uh, as. I was not particularly wanting it, but it was free, so therefore we took it. Is that another Scottish kind of well, thing? Well, or? I think you know the answer to that. I <laughs> think that's the rhetorical one, not <laughs> But um, yes, uh, we took the piano in. All five of us immediately banged it at once. The other four got fed up, and i had kind of stuck with it and tried to make something off it. But they were all saying, Mom, can't you tell me stop that noise? You know, it was kind of like that. Wasn't so much encouragement going. <laughs> at what age did you
1: come across this? piano that was was about eight, away. So quite early on.
2: Yes, and I I said I didn't really work it at that seriously. I just tried to make something off it. It was like a home hobby, like people used to carve little wooden animals or something. That's the way I thought of it. I didn't think of it as any big deal. Right. Until, you know, my friends were forming a band and they were calling this band The Satellites. And they, they all... My best friend today is still uh, Flam Robert Fleming. He he made a living from playing. He still played the guitar and all that stuff, and he um he played a bit of guitar. And uh, we had a friend that wanted to be a singer. Another another friend that was in the pipe band playing drums. So he so he said, "I'll oh, well I'll be the drummer." And then he looked at me and said, "What what will you play?" And I thought, "Bloody hell! What am I going to do? Panic?" And I thought, "I'll play electric organ." And this sort of. Looked at me like, "What the hell's electric organ?" Did but you have a access no, to an electric organ? No, I don't know why. Under to this day, why I said that, it was just the first thing that came into my head. They all looked at me, so I just thought, "What am I going to do?" And and and, and without any kind of preconceived thought, I just said, "I'll play electric organ." And they sort of, "Oh, okay then." And so that was the kind of Pete Shotton of the band, you know. Mm. <laughs> so were you exposed to any artists that
1: had? electric organs in the lineup. It
2: was very early on then. I mean, guitars were the thing. There, was, there must have been other organists at that time. But generally, organ was something that you just created a little background colour. You know, the guitars took the, the lead and you have a hmm. bit of... That was later on, I would say, the organs became more into it. About uh, 66, 67, that kind of time. 65, perhaps, the organs started to come into it. But they were really there to add a little extra texture. They were background instruments, really.
1: The first band that comes to mind in terms of the keyboard being used, or the electric organ being used as background uh, noise would be, the, I suppose, the
2: Dave Clark Five. Yes, yeah, he did a good job, Mike Smith. I mean, he he was standing as well. Indeed. They were standing. I mean, people, one of the things that, that gets under my skin a little bit, or not so much under my skin, but is you always feel that you have to correct it. As they say about me being the first standing keyboard player, standing wasn't important. I mean, people like Jerry Lee Lewis stood at the piano, Little Richard, they stood, but they had a band supporting them, you know. Later on when I did, what they mean when they say that about me was that we had no guitars, it was just organ. But anyway, back at the Satellites, what happened then is we went to the rehearsal and... um, I was feeling a bit kind of, oh, I'm only here to make up the numbers. And then they were trying to learn this song, Troy Shondell's song, This Time. This time we're really breaking up. And um, they were kind of struggling to try to work it out. I was kind of looking at them and thinking, what's the problem? So I played it all and they all turned and looked at me as if I had horns in my head. So I suddenly thought, oh, wait a minute, I must be good. (laughs) it's kind of like that were you
1: self taught or did you
2: write and did
1: you just do everything by ear or did you have one of those play in a day oh no no I
2: never totally learned myself in those days so you were
1: working out chord progressions and inversions and everything just by ear I
2: wanted to know one of the things that was lucky for me was I really wanted to know a lot of people who play by ear and learn to play by ear they don't know why they're doing it they just follow the sounds but I, I always wanted to know why so I always knew the structure, always had good musical theory. I mean, I, I, I taught myself to read music fairly early on too. Pretty basic stuff, but I knew how to do it. I mean, later on in the band, I took classical for a few years, which helped. It was something else. When you about.
1: say later on with the band, we're not talking about the satellites. No, no, no. Which, was, which band? This was in Clouds. This is in Clouds. Clouds
2: by the time I took the, the classical lessons.
1: So to get a timeline, satellites were formed
2: when you were in your mid-teens. Yes, I was fifteen when I joined the satellites. So, a, so that would be what 1959?
1: Right. So at that particular stage, I suppose Skiffle would have been a, a, an, like, the, an an influence along with obviously an American.
2: It was 50s rock and roll, the kind of Bobby Rydell stuff and all that. And I seem to remember that stuff. I, I I mean, I've not great memories of uh, one thing or another. I just remember our, we were great friends. That was the thing. As I say, my, my best friend, who I only see once every five, ten years, still lives in Scotland. We're still talking on the phone, Flam. And um, we. I remember us doing even Beatles songs, which is about 1963. That's right, yeah. That, which is
1: quite fortuitous because a number of years later you were managed by brian Brian epstein
2: Epstein. and briefly we were his last band i think we would send his death knell or something you know
1: the he passed away in 1967 when did he begin to manage one of the bands that you were in later called one two three
2: uh i think it was march or april 67 oh so
1: it was in the same year yes and what are your memories of him? Was it quite clear that he was on the roller coaster of uppers and, and downers? Which... I think
2: they only signed us up because the marquee when when one two three did the marquee it was a kind of revolutionary kind of performance. It, in the sense that half the audience hated us and half the audience loved us and there was people, people almost having fights, you know. I think Dave mentioned some of that. Our friend Dave Dawson. Yes. Who um who's been very very helpful, very kind, very generous. Absolutely, a very good things.
1: man and a recent guest yes. on the Dukey radio show. How hands-on was Brian Epstein with regards to dealing with your band? For instance, did he actually go to that gig at the Marquee? Yes. Or was he informed? Oh, right. So yes. he, he was still kind of active and in hey, terms man, of seeking new talent. Yeah,
2: Robert Stigwood had just uh, formed a joint partnership, or at least Stigwood had been welcomed into the NAMS Enterprise which was the name of the the Beatles organisation, in Argyle Street, next to the Palladium. Oh, well, of course, right. We, we used to, um, and then um, Brian died, and Robert Stigwood assumed total control, uh, supposedly, theoretically, of our career. But at the very same moment, he signed a band called the Bee Gees. They were unknown at that time. We used to go to the clubs together and all that stuff. We were just two unknown bands. And as they started to rise, I remember going to the rehearsals of them doing Massachusetts and everything at the Palladium. We were at the rehearsals in the afternoon watching them. I suppose, in a way,
1: your description of how one, two, three were received at the marquee, in a way, I think that's perhaps why Stigwood went with the Bee Gees. I mean, the Bee Gees certainly... I I know early Bee Gees we're not a Marmite band.
2: I think it was Brian more than than Robert Stigwood that that the record. I mean, it was Brian that said to us we were just wearing the jumpers, and he said, so he, and he showed us the suits he was going to give us, which were striped suits. We looked just like the Jam. I don't think. Have you seen any of those photos?
1: I haven't. No. There's
2: a photo The photos of us in the striped suits, looking just like the Jam looked. Sort of. What was it? Ten. Goodness, so yeah. <laughs> we so, looked just like that and we wore cravats. There was like a blue silk cravat and, and Brian's, Brian's explanation for that was sophisticated music must be presented with sophisticated clothes. So he understood something about it. Uh, and and who knows what would have happened if he'd have stayed around? But he didn't. We didn't see him very often anyway. He was such a busy man. But I think the reason they signed us was because they thought something's going on here. It was so, as I say, it wasn't particularly. There was people cheering and shouting. There was other people going, "What is this? What's going on?" That happened all over the country, all over the country. It wasn't just the marquee. All over the country, there'd, there'd be the, the audience at the back, all the people who wanted to dance, all going effing hell what's this you know and, and getting angry and then down the front with all these other people going oh, bloody hell what's this you know loving it loving the idea of it. The great thing about 123 wasn't so much the musicianship it was the concept it was a very different band. In fact that band's never been heard to this day really other than that I think, think you've a thing on YouTube where they, there's the live thing of us doing America it's pretty rough that, I mean just a Rough recording, but it gives the uh, that was one aspect of one two three, and on that disc you have there of the the last album, up above our heads CD, double CD. There's a song called Sing Sing Sing, which is the only one two three number that survived from the original set because it was Harry's drum solo thing, so we kept that one. Right. But when when later on, after the Stigwood fiasco blew over we were signed by Terry Ellis who was the founder of Chrysalis and he said I love the band but you're gonna have to change everything it's gonna have to have a new name it's going to have to drop all the arty music stuff and play things that people are going to understand you know so that was kind of that was the end of one two three the same band went on as clouds but then we had to do all our songs although now Dave said on the show about the songs but what really happened, it wasn't that we didn't have songs. I had I had actually something like a thousand songs. I wrote songs. Right, so
1: you had tunes. You had tunes had in songs, the back. I had songs,
2: but the problem was they were written for me. They were a private thing again. They weren't written for the band. So we had great trouble assimilating that into the band, you know? Were you protective
1: of those compositions because they were so personal to you? No, or? it wasn't
2: that. It was just that there were not really songs that was written for a band like that, the band was essentially a kind of virtuoso, muso kind of band, you know, lots of kind of that kind of playing. You would frame tracks
1: to support solos and
2: well, it was very open. I mean, I think I like to think we still kept sense and taste. I mean, all those bands that later copied us, like Yes and King Crimson and uh, the Nice, ELP. Uh, well, not, funny enough. It always we always get compared to the ELP and stuff, but all they really took from us was the concept of a rock organ trio. I mean, Dave O'List, the guitarist of the Nice, his days were numbered as soon as Keith heard me, because they thought, right, rock organ trio. But they, they didn't. The only thing that might have been part of the influence there was some of the classical things I played, like in David Bowie's song, I inserted the prelude and Bach's prelude in C minor. Right, things like that, you know.
1: Which Bowie song? Is I that? dig
2: everything. Uh, we met David in uh, Dundee when we were playing as the Premiers up in Dundee. We met David there. We were both on a bill with Johnny Kidd and the Pirates.
1: Goodness, that's a what a great band to be sharing a bill yes. with.
2: Well, David was kind of playing a bit of saxophone and singing. I can't remember what band was it. The Buzz? I think it was the Buzz. One of them, Kevin Khan tells me. Kevin, his biographer, told me that.
1: I'm mindful of the timeline. So you at 15, you formed the, the satellites. satellites. And
2: then following that... 1964, 1964 right. with the big, I joined this other band, The Premiers. The Premiers. Who were a guitar band. There was a there were five-piece guitar band or something. And uh, Ian was the singer, Ian Ellis who later became the bass player in one, two, three and clouds, was the vocalist. Harry Hughes was the drummer. But um when the band kind of fragmented it only left the three of us and we said, Well let's let's do this. Let's just be organ bass and drums. And And Ian play
1: bass. Right. Flam the guitarist from the, the satellites, satellites did he, he jettisoned... carried the satellites
2: carried when I left the satellites they carried on for a while oh right so that that was his yeah. baby and he carried on doing that they carried afterwards. on for a while and then Flam moved to down to Barrow and Furnace in England and and I made got a living as a a one man but things like Dave does the same as Dave does mm. goes, plays guitar sings and he made a good living from that. He still plays now, but it just plays in the church and so on. He's a Christian, you know.
1: The satellites were you using a Hammond in in those days or <laughs>
2: nothing like it. I started no. off the very first thing I started off with was the one my mum bought me for was from Gamages on higher purchase. There's a little thing that stood on you probably see it in that show in the Trailblazer show. It's a little thing that stood on a table. People used to say to me why are you standing at that table? <laughs> it right. didn't even always play something. So that shows you how bad it was. And was it modelled after any particular no, kind it was, of. It was just, it was the only one we could afford to get. They're right. T- tiny, tiny little keys. If you happened to press two together, it made an awful sound. So that was good training in a way. It had to be, you know, the little, little mini keys. Yeah. It's right, mini keys. I didn't realise a mini keys data back that long ago. It didn't have a, it, it wasn't an amplifier to put a microphone on top of it to make it. Come through the amplifier. Oh, so there wasn't
1: a jack out. Well, no, it wasn't. And no. do you recall what size speaker it was? Was it kind of a tiny little speaker? Tiny, or? tiny yeah. Oh All right. So goodness, you'd have a sticker, an SM58 I, or the equivalent it over was it. Like and hope a, for the best. It was
2: like a, a linear amp with. And um, uh, and I made up box. That, that that when I joined the premiers, I still had the amp. this they, they called it the blue box because I had vinyl, blue vinyl wrapped around it. <laughs> they, all had, they all had shining Selmers with flickering lights all in a row and they're very proud of this. And then they hated it when my... But this time I had a Vox Organ, but I had this blue box. And they, oh, wait, that's us effort blue box. It's bucket up our look. But were you using a Vox Jaguar or
1: isn't uh, that what the,
2: the... No, just Vox Continental. A uh, Vox Continental. With oh, a reversed what. keys? Yes,
1: know? which became a, a mainstay for well, Scar uh, bands 10 years The only, the only years person later. I
2: ever really listened... Uh, the only person I admired in those days was Alan Price. Oh, good, is it yeah, from the Animals? animals. Yeah, I thought, yeah. I thought he did a good job. I liked his. And I met him many years later. We gave him a lift back from Oxford to... We are sharing a gig together. We gave him a lift back from Oxford to London... And I always regretted not saying any of that to him. I don't know why. It's just one of those funny things you meet me just having a laugh and talking but I never said to him, I really liked what you did. It's, just a weird did thing. it's the
1: curse of being British. It's understated and, you know, yeah, must I kind
2: of regret that. I should have said to you, oh, you were, you know, I really liked what you did and goodness and the stuff that Price did
1: um, afterwards his solo album was absolutely brilliant and you know, he brought a lot to the party he was a Vox Continental user yes, as well yeah that's
2: that's that's really became that there was two kind of camps in organs organs were starting to become about 65 66 organs were starting to become almost an essential part of a band but still background and there was two camps one was the Vox Continental camp mm. and the other was a uh, Farfisa Used to be great uh, arguments between which was the, and, and we used to kind of look down on the ones that had the fer you know. Oh bastards! Kind of, yeah, you know how it is.
1: You've done <laughs> it, it yourself. You know. it, it inherently kind of produces a sound not that dissimilar from from each other, but yeah, it's it's people get very very, uh, cons- or yeah, <laughs> goodness, it's a bit like PCs and Macs. The decision to jettison a guitarist, how did that come about?
2: Yeah, well, not long after, I mean, I. After I joined the band, the um, the lead guitarist was um, was really he's he a nice nice man, but he, is this he, the premiers that were this was about? this was the premiers, yes, right. that's right. And and um, Derek, uh, he'd been used to the very first rehearsal they did again. I, it was a repeat of that satellite situation. They were being all snooty because I had this kind of. Um, Knocked off amp and things. They were they were kind of a bit more middle class than me, so we kind of think, oh, we've got a real backwards guy here. And so they they went to play this song, and it, and it was an F sharp. I remember. I can't remember what the song was now. The song was an F sharp. And Derek said, oh, we all had to listen to it. And Derek said, um, I'll just sit down and work. He was kind of more upper class than the rest of us, and mm. spoke very well. He said, I'll just sit down and uh, work out the the chords and so on. And before he could do that, I played the whole thing straight off. and know what. You know, you know. Oh, boy, and, uh, boy, can play, but that put Derek out. You know that he felt immediately overshadowed, both at the rehearsals and on stage. I would play, I wouldn't, I wouldn't play his lines, but I play all, I play like a lead player. I was playing through, through him, and I could play much better than he could. So, I think in the end, he just thought. And then, at the very same time, too, the other guys left as well. The band kind of fragmented, by itself. You know, kind of imploded. Derek left and I thought, what are we going to do with that guitar? And I was going, you're joking, aren't you? You know, I was kind of like that. I wanted to be, really, what it was, I wanted to be a guitarist. I wanted to be that guy out there blazing away. But I couldn't, I could play guitar, but not like that. I was more of a rhythm guitar player.
1: Right. And you clearly were well, destined to, to hit them keys. It's as though divine intervention happened when that I piano saw, was left I outside saw your house. very
2: recent, only just in the last couple of weeks, the, the, this um, TV show, the producers dug up a, 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 a TV show of us, Clouds, back in the old days. And they're going to show clips of that. And they sent me the actual full video of that. And I was And I was surprised when I saw it. I thought, well, yeah, it was actually... Completely different kind of playing from everybody else. It wasn't like Keith Emerson or Rick Wakeman, who I thought of as living room players. That was my description of them. Like, living they could, room players. Yes, they could play all the things. They could play kind of fancy and nice, and play play very well. But they didn't play any different on stage. They just went on stage and played the same kind of things. I didn't. I was kind of bang. Take that, you know. And Unhinged. Just that. Unhinged. It was. It was dynamic. It was rock. I mean, I was more like what you'd see Jerry Lee Lewis doing, or some of those guys who played like that. You know, I mean, I don't, I didn't like what Jerry Lee did, sitting on and standing it and all that. But, but that dynamic approach, bang, Aggr- aggression
1: and yeah, shamedly well, taking uh, the lead.
2: You would understand that that that's part of the very the very sixties thing. The thing I, I don't hear bands doing so much now is they all they all play like they're playing the record. There's no kind of interaction to everywhere you play there's a different acoustic and you've got to react to that you've got to find ways of playing you can play a solo one night and it works a treat and is, goes great if you play the same notes exactly the same way the next night it won't work you have to always find the way and that was very much a 60s thing and that's that's how i approach playing every time i played it i wouldn't play it that way i'd be looking for what would work this time mm. you understand that, that it's a very different ethos
1: yeah, certainly. I think there is a very conveyor belt attitude towards music, which I think mean, probably historically from the 80s onwards, where everything became identical, not so much just in the sounds that were being used, but the idea that live music started to become the CD being performed live. and And also, I think the expectation from audiences also altered where people wanted to to hear the CD yes. performed live well that's
2: true that to be fair if i must be the the what really happened was that they became a standardized thing whereas bands like us we could be great one night not so good another night but now it's all much more controlled but you don't get those highs anymore it's all like controlled by the mixing desk at the back of the auditorium or whatever <laughs>
1: In a way, going back to balance, it's it's maybe too balanced. I think it's <laughs> oh, it's kind of out of balance, isn't it? Well, yes, yeah. true. I prefer that perspective. Yeah. yeah. How did you approach amplification when the guitarist left? Did you suddenly go from your blue box to oh, by that a, time I a had, Selma? I
2: already had um, much more. By the time all that happened, I already had much more uh, amplification. I think I had Vox cabinets or something. No, no, I think I got them. I got them. One of the things that uh, signing with NEMS and Brian Epstein did was we got free Vox equipment. Of course. So we got yes. piles of Vox amplifiers. Thanks, the out to Aerith. We used to have a place out at Aerith. Right. And Kent, you know, that way. And um, we all had to go out there and pick what we wanted from them. So, we- Jennings Music Industries. Yes. And when the Bee Gees um, became kind of solo. You know, started to lose the band. It just became the three of them. They they passed a lot of the stuff on to us. Oh,
1: you inherited some of the Bee Gees yeah, backline. Yeah, we did. Yes. Also with the, the Beatles connection, hence the, the the Vox Continentals, keeping it in the, the Vox. Well, Jenny's by, that music. Time I had a, Family. by that
2: time I had a but that time I had a Hammond and M One or Two, which was the first one I had. Ironically, on, on this um, film, the, the the show was the TV show. We were on a, we were on our tour at the time called the Island Records tour. And it was uh, all over Europe and we did TV shows in Belgium, Finland, Sweden, Denmark and Germany. Germany was the biggest one. It was the first colour rock show in the world. It was Beat Club and it was it was like a big deal at that time, Beat Club. And we were on tour with uh, Jethro Tull, and Spooky Tooth and uh, Free. There was the four of us on the tour, the Island Records tour it was called. This would... Be judging from it's that line, uh, 1970.
1: Oh goodness! So by that particular February stage.
2: 1970. This is. Oh right, uh, and I'm using an M102 in that show, but it's the on a tour. I used a C3 by that time, which was a much better instrument. And did you incorporate Quite the the Leslie? Uh, oh yes, cabinet I, into that. I had a Leslie through a thousand watt PA. Uh, which was big. That's nothing now, but for the time that was big. That was, that was Wem, quite... A WMPA. a WMPA. go. You remember them? And I had high watts. I had um, four high watts stacks.
1: Goodness, and those are loud. When they deliver the watts that they. It was, the, it was truly
2: them. the loudest organ sound that we would ever heard. It was loud, it was big.
1: Needless to say, the late Keith Emerson and uh, his partners in crime you know, borrowed from that in a big he was way. A great,
2: he was a great musician, Keith. I um, mean, he wasn't very... He was pretty ungracious to me, I think, considering the history. But uh, I still think he was a really good musician, but he wasn't that kind of player. I mean, it was all what you saw on the stage. It wasn't dynamic. In terms of the playing, he didn't play like that. He was more from that. Most of the organists were from Jimmy Smith, Jimmy McGriff school, playing did 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 did. You know, green onions and all that. They kind of played that way. I never I never tried to play like a normal organist. I always tried to play like a guitarist. <laughs> so by you trying to emulate a guitar player,
1: you developed your own style that hadn't really been I didn't, achieved.
2: I didn't really think of it that way it was all unconscious that way subconscious whatever I I just approached it that way I wanted to be out there in the playing so I didn't have any style that, that That also I played everything in octaves you know like when I play this a big big thing that happened is in those early instruments there were one keyboard if you played a solo and tried to play you know like normal things with your left hand mm. it drowned out the right hand or it mixed it up most even if you watch like Rick Wakeman people are like oh, he's playing one-handed solos things like that on. I'd, I always thought well I can't have standing with one hand doing nothing so I played everything in octaves or harmonies I play like fifths or tenths or, so my left hand was playing as fast as my right was all the time and it also doubled the sound it doubled the strength of the sound
1: absolutely it's not only making up for the guitar that had been there and that was no longer there but actually overshadowing what the guitar could it, do anyway that's a mighty big sound did, particularly it what did Hammond.
2: mean i mean the big thing about the way i played was i played whatever was needed to be played so it meant it did restrict me in the sense that i had to play things that were medley i couldn't play anything sort of uh, light or or pretty everything had to be there because i was the band you know in terms of the the if you take away the rhythm section that only left me so it had to be pretty full. So it, it restricted the, the way I played things, yes.
1: I think that's the, the nature of the way trios are. You, subtlety does go well, out the window in terms of the core sounds anyway. Uh,
2: well, it, guitars can carry it generally much better, you know, uh, if you have a guitar power trio, as they call them now. Um, but, but organ trios before then were pretty much jazz or swing bands. Mm. They, they weren't, it wasn't rock. That's, that's what they probably mean when they refer to me that way. It was rock. It was a rock band. I mean, Stigwood didn't know what to do with us, really. That was the truth. You were definitely not the Bee Gees. He, he did not know what to do with us. He sent us on a, a tour of Northern Clubs, playing in between Fire Eaters and Jugglers and things, because we were just so different. We didn't. There was no prog at that time, so they, they really didn't know what to do with us.
1: Also, hearing those early recordings, if you listen to them now... They're not shocking because people are quite acclimatized to hearing what came after it. It's only when you look at the the year that you know the years that you were doing this, and because how far ahead of its time that well, it the, is is
2: the, the sad. The sad thing really is that one, two, three was never never made an album as one, two, three. By the time we made those albums, we were clouds, so it was like a different band really. Yeah, you can still hear the stuff in it. You can still hear the influence, but one, two, three sounded a lot different to clouds. I mean, you do have that track that you can hear of America. <laughs>
0: He in my we bought a pack of cigarettes in Mrs. White's bag, and walked off to the Far American. I ass, and reported the Greyhound in Pittsburgh. It seems like, like a dream, dream to me now It took me it 40 minutes for you know. I've come to the farm America Laughing on the bar Playing games with the of She said the man in the garden wasn't fun. The one.
2: Was only one aspect and if you hear what a hear uh, sing 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 the Benny old Benny Goodman number mm. you can hear that in that CD that again is another aspect of one two three <laughs> we did every song different but it was very much much more bluesy than what Prog became it was bluesy it was um not so much jazzy but it was pretty much aiming at that blues blues orientated kind of thing and and there was a lot of we did we did a number by the swingle singers well there was no vo he saw Wishbone Ash or something like that much later that was one three that was the stuff we did things like that we just sing a whole song with no lyrics you know
1: 1967, what was your band 123 doing when Brian Epstein passed away?
2: When when he died, we were touring the Northern Clubs, actually.
1: Earlier on, we heard your cover of Poor Simon's America. When did you, as a band, later on as Clouds, actually tour the States?
2: We did the States twice, 1970. We played the film or we got fantastic reviews, which we didn't know until recent years because there was no internet. We didn't know about the reviews. Yeah, you, if had we known, we might have carried on a bit longer, <laughs>
1: but we didn't know, you see. And how extensive were the, the American tours as We, as we were virtually in America for about a year, right. all told. And what were the travelling conditions
2: like? Oh, uh, well... It, Bruce or anybody that would tell you that stuff. It's pretty much every town becomes the same. You're asking each other. You're sitting in the in the city, and you're saying, "Where are we today? Where is this?" Because <laughs> it's all the same, you know. Yeah. You just airport gig, ha- cold hamburger, onto the next one. It was like that for a year. Very hard. So back to. Sixty-seven. Did Epstein book you to do those? No, Northern no. We, we what happened was we 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 came down. We we were playing in Scotland in nineteen sixty-six, and the audiences were all going, "Oh, what the what the hell is this?" You know, they were all kind of pissed off. They wanted to hear knock on wood and stuff, and we were uh, playing all this kind of stop start with different tempi and things. We, you know, stop in the middle of a song and play something else. We'd do bits where there was no music. We were just singing a cappella, and the audience was all going, "Oh." We've got police escorted all over the country. You know, one, two, three. It's true. It's, it's amazing. Well, Does that really happen? That's not it, hyperbole. It, it, it's, um, it's actually factual. I mean, at, almost everywhere we played, especially up north, with police escorts and stuff, the people get so angry when you're not playing music they want to hear. They get absolutely outraged. Were you
1: tempted to? Give the people what they want, even if it no. would be at the expense of you. Being- now we
2: were kind of arrogant, you know, with that youthful arrogance. I like that. Yeah. We kind of thought, no, well, no, we know what we're doing is good. Uh, the whole thing that brought us to London was, we thought, well, we can't seem to. People here don't understand, so we'll go to London, where they're very happy, they'll understand. But when we got there, it was no different to Scotland. Just, <laughs> nothing was much different. But we we almost immediately landed a residency at the Marquis. Which uh, was purely because Archie, our our um, road manager at the time, our, our manager, he um, is a friend of ours. He he uh, managed to talk his way into an addition at the Marquee, and John G. Um, we didn't know all this till later, but John G. was basically a jazz fan. He looked down in pop groups, and when he heard us play, he thought, "Oh, this is the missing link. It's a pop group that plays like a jazz group." Mm. So it was a big thing for any band like all the bands that later became Yes and you know, like Sin and those bands, they they all did support spots at the Marquee. where we never did. We went straight on to being headliners, so that caused a great deal of resentment.
1: To a certain extent, you were greeted with uh, animosity from your fellow peers. Quite well, well from in, the in that sense.
2: But then again, I think there were. I always remember there was a band called the Marmalade from Scotland. Had quite a few hits, and we were doing the gig there one night, and they were standing in front of the stage, and we were standing like with their mouths open, they were are going. Like, and Dean Ford, who was the singer, you know, the Ubladie and all that, he said to me, said, "Where have you guys come from?" It sounds like you know, as if we would come from Mars or something. We, so we were quite smug about it. We we were facing loads of animosity, but we we were with we that youthful confidence. We you don't realise the problems. You just think this is good. You'll have to suffer it. You know, that was our attitude. The residency at the
1: Marquee, when did that happen and how, how long did you 67. have that for? March 67.
2: And we played there for that next... We played there for a couple of months on Saturday nights, Now, then Friday nights and things. And then, of course, as, once we were signed to to Brian Epstein and all that, we started to spread a lot, so we couldn't play the Marquee much then. We'd done that. It was only a couple of months residency, but it caused such a fuss. There's all those people there, you know, like the guys who are future members of these other groups.
1: All taking notes. As and Dave sent yes.
2: photocopies. That was
1: the nice one. <laughs> In terms of the marquee residency, did you feel that you
2: at least had acceptance there? We felt we were making well. I mean, being signed to them, we were very blase about it. It was right. oh, okay. You know, you see it now, Brian Epstein was our manager. But at the time, we were just like, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> you take it all, you start, we're, we're at the Albert Hall next week. Oh, are we? You know, it was like, wow, you know. <laughs> You're just kind of, all oh, right, okay.
1: <laughs> At that particular stage, the the sets that you were doing, how what was the proportion of, of originals to no, covers?
2: No originals. Right. It was all covers. But we did the covers so drastically. I mean, people sometimes say things like, um, they, they compare us, say, with Vanilla Fudge. Well, I never thought that was... Vanilla Fudge did do slowed-down versions of, like, Ah, uh, you keep me hanging on or something. Mm. But what one, two, three did was much more drastic, and before it was before Vanilla Fudge too. It was much more drastic. We completely well, you heard what we did with America. That's the only one you could hear. The, we completely changed the tunes. We put bits in that weren't there before. I, I mean, as a songwriter myself, I always looked to keep the spirit of the song. I mean, David, boy, he he loved our version of his song. You know, I dig everything.
1: And here's a little snippet from the David Bowie original of I Dig Everything.
2: The two versions. At one point, I, I was asked to do what you call a virtual version of One, Two, Three. It's just me, you know, doing a studio home version of how it, it doesn't show you what the band was like because you've not got Harry's drumming or the singing, but it shows you what the arrangements were like. They, they were pretty complex. The Spirit of one, two, three, because it's only one guy, it's not the bit. The interesting thing about that one is, and Kevin Kahn, who's a friend of David Boy's and biographer, and all that, he um, he confirmed it to me too. The bit David did in the concert in New York where he plays America at the beginning, Mm. if you listen to the middle bit of our one, you can hear that direct link, right? The people have written that in America, somebody somebody on a, a website in America somebody who runs a website has has said about a boy saying it was a memory of a a, a song he remembered, uh, Paul Simon's America. It was appropriate. And they said it was also an old memory because he got it from one, two, three, you know, <laughs> which was true. Very astute. Yeah, it was good. It's amazing where this stuff's all coming from, even seeing you today and everything. It's it's like things are just sprouting up. Dave's, Dave's due in part. To that too, Dave and Bruce, they've been very certainly, yeah, yeah supportive,
1: it's, kind. It's helped to get the momentum happening again in terms of
2: interest in your history. Well, and if I ever had made the big time, I would wish for somebody like Dave around, you know, and Bruce too, you know.
1: Both recent guests on the Dukey Radio Show, Bruce Thomas and Dave Dawson.
2: When did you first come across the term? Frog. They really began with uh, in the court of the Crimson King, you know, King Crimson. Mm. I very grudgingly would say that um, 21st century Skid man was the nearest thing I heard to One, Two, Three. I mean, it was it's one. I think I, I they didn't. It was only in, in flashes, but but I mean, yes, tried to copy us, but it came out sounding different. It doesn't wasn't like One, Two, Three, but it was the concept. That's what they took mainly, was the concept. The thing thing I think that, and you would understand this, the thing that musicians sort of felt when they saw us was, oh, wait a minute, you don't have to do a song like verse, chorus. You can can do whatever you like. You can stop, you can start, you can play over, you can add bits, you can compose new things in it. You can really, the, the whole thing's free. What they didn't understand, unfortunately, in my opinion, they didn't understand that, if you're going to be that clever and that flash and, and, and showing off and all that stuff, you've got to be double careful to keep good taste and sense. That's where they lost it in my opinion. They didn't do that.
1: I think certainly taste went out the window that certainly as developed. Yes, never would have happened with developed. one, two,
2: three. Never would have happened with one, two, three, because I wouldn't have allowed that because songwriter's sensibility. It must it must have the flavour of the song. Must have it. The big problem I had was when Clouds, the, the the new brief that Terry gave us, Terry Ellis, for Clouds, was you have to do your own songs. Well, I was used to taking other people's songs and rewriting them. How could I rewrite my own songs? It, it was a, a kind of conundrum. Billy,
1: Billy, the thing which confuses me, is you mentioned having all of those songs that you'd written... For yourself, I completely get that. Going back to balance, you were able to... <laughs> exp- Use that word again. Yeah, it, absolutely. No. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's like a comedian's callback. <laughs> again, but using the idea of balance, so you, you were able to, within 123 and Clouds, to explore traditional numbers, standards, and to make them your own, and in many ways composing new parts around them. At any stage, had you tried to bring something in and go, lads, here we go, this is in B-flat, and boom! Here's a tune. Had you attempted that at all ever?
2: No, we never. We never brought the two. We we always felt that um, that I always kept my songs separate. Really, they were they were just personal statements. They were just something I did. I mean, on um, Scrapbook is gets a lot of praise as an album. Well, it's actually called the Cloud Scrapbook. Everybody just calls it Scrapbook. It's called the Cloud Scrapbook, and which led a lot of people to call us the Clouds but actually it was just Clouds. I hated that name. Right from when Terry said, I said, oh, do we have to have that name? And I was right, you know, because that name's such a naff name that that there's about five bands called Clouds. I mean, it doesn't matter that we were the first. It's, It's not a name to... And it doesn't... I think Terry got that from listening to my songs. When he heard this... After he heard the band and loved the band, he heard my songs and loved the songs, and he thought, we've got to try and bring these together. But there were two different genres you know that's why scrapbook so sounds like a fragmented album because you've got pop songs i mean hardly any of the songs in that album we played live really right because they weren't they weren't clouds or songs you know i mean even watercolor days which i think is about the best we did at getting something together we never played it live Cold sweat. There's there's a few of them on there. We did play, but not many. Why did you not uh, do they, that? They weren't really like the band. The band was really a musical kind of band. You know, it wasn't a song band.
1: So had you felt that you were compromising your initial it just, remit? It and was intention? just something
2: in my head. I couldn't. If I saw somebody else's song, like Paul Simon's song or David boy's song, I could find a way, other ways to do it my head wouldn't work that way. I'd written my song. How do I change my song? So what I had to do was try and do write pieces round it and things like that. And in the later, the last album, Watercolour Days, we were just starting to get it together. It was a process. We would have got there eventually. Another two albums would have got us there, but I couldn't, I was struggling with it. Struggling in what way? Uh, struggling to make the concept work of my songs in a clouds band. Right. Uh, a lot of the songs ended up as like riffs or there weren't really songs there were riffs you know or it was all the thing was that the band was a kind of say virtuoso kind of band there was lots of playing harry and i in a constant battle you know for supremacy drummers <laughs> drummers you know all about yeah. drummers drummers he would always try and drown me out, and he never could. I would never allow. It. Well, with one thousand watts of WEM and high Watt goodness, well, how could he? Just playing it? as much as possible, really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, that made it good. It was like a con. It was like a contest. I didn't think of it that way at the time, but I think that's what it was.
1: Well, that is indeed your lot for the moment, anyway. You've been listening to part one of our three-part interview with Billy Ritchie. My name is Dukey, and I've been your host. In the next two instalments, coming very soon, we will explore the effect of Brian Epstein's death on the band 123, the formation of clouds, the band that is, and the allure of being a true Scotsman while touring Europe and North America, as well as destroying Hammond organs on stage and much more. Until next time, may the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. Now it's time for me to go and uh, (coughs) pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppany rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Facebook got your mouse to our facebook page facebook it's easy to find it will not take an age facebook www.facebook.com forward slash the Dukey radio show the Dukey radio show the thin white Dukey is right. Click your way to the Dukey Radio Show Facebook page. www.facebook.com forward slash The Dukey Radio Show. The Dukey Radio Show, The Dukey Radio Show.